G'day and welcome to Overdrive, a program that takes a broad look at how cars and transport impact our communities. I'm David Brown. We continue our holiday presentations with the first program of 2024. In this edition, we cover more details from an interview we did during 2023. Motoring journalist David Berthon restored what came to be considered as the best 1913 Rolls-Royce in the world. He sold it after 15 years of refurbishment and enjoyment in driving and has now bought a 1928 Rolls. The background to this latest vehicle and David's feelings on selling his previous model is a wonderful reflection of the life and times of historical motor cars. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or the socials, podcast, Facebook, Instagram and YouTube. In each case, look for Cars Transport Culture. This program was originally broadcast on the 6th of January 2024. I'm sitting in a leafy suburb in Sydney in an office. On the wall is some glorious old photos of racing cars from the early era and, of course, pictures of family. But inspiration is to also look out through the window and see in the garage a glorious historic motor vehicle. I'm with David Berthon from 2GB Motoring Correspondents. David, what's the car? Well, it's a 1928 Phantom 1 Rolls-Royce. It has a Hibbert and Darren Imperial Cabriolet body, which sounds rather wordy. Hibbert and Darren were two interesting characters, both Americans. They worked at Le Baron in the design studio. Uh, They decided to go to Paris in 1925 and set up a design studio there and design bodies for the rich and famous. What used to happen, a lot of very wealthy Americans in the 20s used to travel to Europe and these two guys got the bright idea that when you bought a car in Europe and you took it back into America, you got special allowance on it uh, from a taxation point of view. So it was a car that you'd buy in, you might go to Paris, buy a Rolls Royce, drive it around Europe with your family, take it back to America and you actually got the car in. You purchased it for a lower price than you would in the American market. So so they did very, very well between 1925 and 1929. And they built, I think, about 300 bodies. Uh, of course, but the Great Depression finished them off in 1929. Hibbard went back to America and Damon caught up with a, um, a Greek financier called Fernandez and he built bodies called Fernandez and Darren. So uh, they did that up until the 30s, mid-30s. But this car here... It's got a fascinating history. I mean, it was purchased new by a guy called Carlos Eduardo Eduardo Bleck. Carlos Eduardo Bleck, quite a mouthy name, from Lisbon in Portugal. And he was a mad sailor and he sailed in the 1928 Amsterdam Olympic Games for his country. And he did well and his father, as a present, bought him the car in February 1928. And... His father was a prominent Lisbon motor dealer and Rolls-Royce France supplied the car. Hibbert and Darren did the coachwork. And just unfortunately, I haven't been able to trace the history after his ownership, but it was subsequently found in 1996 under a chateau in France where it had been for about 30 years. So um, a friend of mine, a car collector in Sydney, Jorge Fernandez, uh, who was Spanish, he... um, he bought the car along with a French Foison 
and uh, which was in the same chateau, and brought them both to Australia. And funnily enough, he never ever got round to restoring it. So he showed me the car in about 2001 in his garage, and I fell in love with the coachwork. I just loved the the style of it, it you know. Um, American designers always love long bonnets, and this car has a long bonnet. If you, were, if you compared that body with a Barker or Hooper English body, you'd have a much shorter scuttle, and so you wouldn't have that effect where the driver looks like he's sitting in the middle of the car. Long wheelbase, uh, so you're driving the car from about the centre of the car. Beautiful ride. So Hibbert and Darren managed to achieve that. So it always appealed to me. And so sadly, George Oh, Yorga is his Spanish uh, name. Yorga died about three years ago and his widow and I had always been good friends. Uh, We've been friends of the family and she said to me, you've always loved that car. She said, I'm going to sell it. Would you be interested? I said, yes, I'd love to buy it. And I had recently sold my 1913 Silver Ghost and um, I thought, yeah, so I bought it. Was it in reasonable condition? Was it The car, yeah, it was in, look, it was in surprisingly good condition. It had no top material that was missing, but, and the seats were terribly tatty, and mechanically it needed doing. A yoga had started, the only thing he'd done on the car was get the engine reconditioned, and that was about three-quarters of the way through. Part of the deal in me purchasing it was that his widow finally finished that off, I had the gearbox reconditioned, we did the brakes, trued all the wheels up, new tyres, shock absorbers all needed attention. This model had hydraulic shock absorbers, so they all had to be reconditioned and it had to be trimmed. The big question mark was the actual top because it's, a, it's an interesting body. You can actually drive it with the show, with totally complete covered or you can drive it with a chauffeur compartment open because it has a division, wind-up division, or you can have it as a total full-down cabriolet and the B-pillars clip out and go into leather pouches in the running boards. So the B-pillar comes out and so it becomes a full convertible. So it's quite an unusual body. The body, one thing that Hibbert and Darren did was that they, unlike a lot of English coach builders who use timber, they did about 50% of the bodywork structure in aluminium. And, and frankly, after this, not in 1929, they went totally to aluminium. They had a, a patented system for building bodies using aluminium framework. So the car is very strong, very rigid, and you can always tell a hip and a Darren body because it has three door hinges on the doors, as distinct from most English cars only had two. Is this a unique car then, or did they do several like this? Uh, they did 14 car bodies like that on Phantom 1 chassis. I know of three. Aluminium is both lighter. Is that a, seen as an advantage as well as, of course, not rusting? Yeah, well, that'd be yeah, rust, I suppose, would be a factor, but being enclosed in the body, not so critical, but just, you know, old cars by nature and the rough roads in that era you know, played fair havoc with timber bodies. So having aluminium is much, much, much stronger. Yeah, I mean, the body is amazingly stiff. I can't believe how stiff it is. But the one thing that was missing, as I said, was the top. And I rang um, a friend of mine in England, an historian, Rolls-Royce historian, Tom Clark, and I rang him, said, Tom, do you know of any other cars like this uh, in your travels? And he said, look, there's a guy in Switzerland has exactly the same car. 1928 in the same body. So his name was uh, Jürgen 
uh, I can't think of his surname, but Jeff, really lovely man. I rang him up, had a chemical company, and he said, oh, you know, David, in his, his uh, Swiss sort of accent, uh, I'm only too happy to help. He said, I'll get my man to take detailed photos of the car in all its positions, with the hood up, down, part down, and uh, that was just so helpful to me, to, so I could give that to the trimmer and get it trimmed properly. Because it, it's a bit of a trick to water seal these cars. I mean, the, the way it fits together, you make sure that it you know, doesn't, you don't get water in the car. So it has a a, a lovely design aspect to it as well, isn't it? It's well, not just looking at a Rolls Royce with the spirit of ecstasy on the front. It's a it's a complete package. Oh yeah, I mean, it's a very elegant car. Everybody's captivated by the elegance of it, and you see the the Phantom One came after the Silver Ghost. So we had 19 years of the Silver Ghost in 1926. The Phantom One arrived, late 25 actually. Phantom One arrived and it ran till about 29 before the Phantom Two came on board. Um, and of course the Great Depression changed the whole upper luxury car market in 29. Um, so it did very well in 26, 27, 28, uh, the popular years, although you know, I think there were about 2,200 Phantom ones built to 6,600 Silver Ghosts. So, um, but you know, um, the Silver Ghosts, as I said, built over a 19-year period. So, I mean, the war the war took out about three or four years of production. So, um, but the Phantom One uh, overhead valve. Uh, it was a new era for Rolls-Royce, basically the same chassis, the big cantilever rear springs giving you the ride. Of course, in Phantom Two, brought in uh, standard semi-electric springs uh, and a lower chassis line, which they needed in 1930 because basically in the 1930s, the, all of the coach work was very low. So these inverted springs the other way, the cantilever springs, didn't allow the chassis to sit down low enough. So... Um, what was the pressure for making it lower to get into, but also to uh, handle? I think more stylish, and you know oh. the Art Deco era. You oh. know there were some beautiful, and you know again long bonnets in the Art Deco era. The early Alfa Romeos with their beautiful long bonnets, and the French cars with their exquisite coachwork. I mean, it really was the grand era of coach building in my book. You know, the early thirties up to. Uh, 38 before World War Two. You mentioned that you thought that the depression was a significant oh. trigger to something else. What was what, what was oh, the progression I think, there? I think I think there was an era there probably where the you I mean customers simply weren't buying cars in late 29, 1930. Oh. You know the market just went totally dead. The world was in as as the name implies was depressed. Uh, it was a very much depressed market. Even the wealthy were struggling to keep their wealth and. Uh, and I think come 32, 33, uh, the whole market changed and the new design of cars were a little bit more modern and designers saw the need to get more stylish, longer wheelbases. You know, there were some very glamorous cars in that era. That it, it's interesting, perhaps the Depression said that the past doesn't always lead to yeah. a glorious future yeah. and you've got to make the present now what you make well, the present to be. I guess, I guess they had to inspire customers to come back and buy a car, you know. Yes. And so to do that, they made very glamorous cars. Even lower cost cars became quite stylish. Mm. You know, you think about the MGs of the 30s, the Rileys. You know, those sort of cars, English cars, were very, very, well, again, long bonnets and 
giving that lovely long look. And so the vintage era was still very much, uh, you know, post-World War I up until 29. It, that hung on to that vintage, more upright look. And this car is very upright. Um, chauffeur sits, you know, upright. The steering is what they... You, you, in a Rolls-Royce, you get A, B, C and D steering. This car has an A steering, which is the most vertical. So the chauffeur sits upright. So it wasn't adjustable. It was you You selected which one was appropriate. Yeah, you wanted, well, the coach builder did that, depending on the style of the coach building. If you bought a car without... Like, this car has a petition... If you bought a car without a petition, it would mean that the seat could come back so you could have a lower steering position, you know, so you could then again get more elegant styling. Um, and the Tourers were, the Tourers generally had a, a C or a D steering, where which was lower, so you had a lower, a Tourer being a lower body line. Mm. But the, the car, um, you know... Do you think that's where cars were perhaps becoming a little easier to drive and it could be less of the chauffeur, the specialist role and more the person enjoying the, the drive themselves? Is there a little bit of that? Yeah, I've never, really, I've never really looked at just what percentage the chauffeur market represented, but uh, a car like this you know, generally would have had a chauffeur. Yeah. Um, the tourers more so were owner drivers. Uh, but the saloons and cabriolets and, and that would have had uh, a chauffeur generally driving them and, the, and, you know, the the owner would have sat with his lady in the back, you know, <laughs> whereas an owner-driver and his wife would have sat in the front. But, of course, I've never really looked at what percentage it would mm. be mm. of the two, but mm. uh, certainly there were people that liked to do their own driving. Is this easy to drive? It's a heavy car, uh, you know. You know, you're driving a rather heavy car. I did have problems with the steering because the car had sat with very old lubrication in the steering box, which had obviously turned into was probably a very heavy oil. But see, it sat in under the chateau for thirty odd years. Then George or Yorga, who who brought it to Australia, he kept the car before I bought it. He'd owned it for about twenty four years. Mm. So for basically 50 years, it hadn't been driven. And so the oil in the steering box had just gone into cake like a... Sludge. Yeah, yeah. Really hard. And the steering oh, was just woeful, even though we put, we added new oil, but it wasn't good. I now have a friend who's got a small oil company. He, he does specialist oil, Harrison Oil Company. It's 100 years old, actually. He, his grandfather started it. And he has developed, just developed some new oil for me specifically, which has a high, uh, it'll take a very high load under pressure, which is what you need, because you have a worm and a wheel. As the worm works, it works its way through the wheel as such, it needs a very binding oil to, to, so that it doesn't squeegee out. Like it's made a big difference to the car. Seriously. So, yeah. So, you know, I'm now getting that. I mean, last year I went on a rally to Mount Gambier. And uh, on the Diana and I drove from Mount Gambier back to Melbourne, and I got to Geelong, and I was totally exhausted by the weight of the steering. It got progressively heavier. And it got to Geelong, and I just said, "Look, we'll have to pull up here for the night. I just can't go any further." Mm. So I've since rectified that. But these cars, the Phantom One, basically has about a third more power to a Silver Ghost. A Silver Ghost. Maximum power is developed at about 2,200 revs. At 2,200 revs in this car, 
It has about a third more power, uh, developed power, and will rev out to 2,800 revs. So you've got about another 600 revs. Terribly yeah. powerful. Well, you moved from your 1913, which is made yeah. uh, for racing, and we'll touch yeah. on that in a moment, but perhaps then to this one, what were some of the significance? I, I know they're different in perhaps an in intent in that, but yes. from your driving point of view, and you love to drive them, and I think that's lovely. Oh, yeah, I love it, yeah. Well, the, the, the veteran Silver Ghost, the 1913 model, only had rear brakes, so whilst, whilst it, it was light and, and, and hand-operated, not on the foot, the foot, operate, the foot brake in the veteran Silver Ghost is on the transmission, and you try not to use that because it puts enormous strain on the transmission itself. As you can imagine, you're braking through the gearbox, whereas uh, and the, the rear brakes are hand-operated on, so you've got to reach to the lever, so your reaction time has to be sharp, and invariably when you're driving a veteran car, you leave enough space in front because you haven't got the stopping power of a modern car, but unfortunately modern drivers don't appreciate that and they come past you and fill the gap, and so you have to be very much on the you know, on the pace, watching what the modern traffic does around you to make sure you don't run out of room. This car has servo-assisted brakes, which Henry Royce basically took from a Hispano-Suiza patent. So the brakes are as good as a hydraulic system, to be honest. They're cable-operated. But the servo assistance off the gearbox and it has a little servo unit running out of the side of the gearbox that does that as a sort of a separate little braking unit. The pedal pressure is fabulous, and the bra- we did all the brakes in this car and did the you know skimmed all the drums and new soft linings. You must, you've got to make sure you get soft linings because it's very hard to get today, and they have to be non-asbestos, of course, to, to comply with regulations. But the brakes on it are beautiful, mm-hmm. and I have to say. But you still have the the advance and retard control on the oh, steering yeah, wheel still, and those yeah, sorts you still, of things. You don't. In fact, it does have it does have um, a pressure regulated advance and retard in addition to the hand operated. So it does one overrides the other at a certain point. Okay. Might, yeah, you might get up to say fifty percent on the hand one, and then the rest's taken up as the revs come up through oil pressure. It's on a little oil driven pressure valve that adjusts the distributor. I remember you cranking the 1913. (laughs) Would you crank this one? Oh, no, it's a hard car. It'd be a hard car to crank, yeah, because it's a fairly long-stroke motor and, you know, you've got to be so careful you don't break your arm. I mean, you know, they do kick back. But, you know, you've got to make sure you have a retarded spark so that can't happen. But it's a gear-driven starter motor off the front of the gearbox and it works very well. Well, that's why General Motors brought in the electric starter, wasn't it? Because the managing director knew someone who had a kickback, broke his uh, a shoulder and he died. It was Kettle, Kettle, Kettleman, I think, was the guy who'd made electric motors for a shopping centre yeah. tills. Oh, right. Oh, yeah. right. And, uh, oh, I think it was Cadillac, which was Cadillac, gen- yes. General. Yes. Cadillac, Cadillac were the first yes. to introduce electric start in about 14, 1914. Yes. But the starter motor on this works well, and the car starts very effortlessly, very easily. And it tours. What revs would it sit on 100k? Uh, well, uh, yeah, I fitted an overdrive to this car. You see, with Rolls-Royce, you could, depending on the, 
the weight of the coachwork and the style of motoring you're going to do, you could, uh, you could buy the car with three different ratios. 14.52, so um, 14.52 is whether, uh, oh, about three and a half to one. 15.52, 16, oh, sorry, four ratios. 13, uh, sorry, 14.52, 15.52, 16.52 and 17.52, which would be a high speed touring body. For this car is fitted with a 1652 diff, which is still a little bit slow, but uh, you know, for modern freeway conditions where you can cruise at 100, I fitted a, a, what's called an American Gear Vendors Overdrive, which is made specifically for these. And you take out part of the torque tube in the front behind the gearbox and you fit the, the Gear Vendors Overdrive in there. It's elect electronically operated, a little switch under the dashboard which is hidden, you can't see it so you don't spoil the authenticity of the car, the originality of it. You just pull a little switch down, put your foot on the clutch, pull it down, it works a treat. And at 100 k's I'm doing about 900 words. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> yeah. almost like idling really, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. But does that mean, of course, that you get longevity out of the car? You're not. Oh, well, you're not stressing it. You see, you've always do. Like we're going on a rally to Millowa down in uh, Victoria in October, and you know I'm going to get out on the Hume Highway, and I'll be cruising at 100. I don't want to stress the car. It'll be quite hot. This car has adjustable. Difference between this car and a Silver Ghost, it has adjustable shutters, so I can adjust the temperature by the shutters at any given time. This is shutters at the front of the car letting air into, yeah, the, letting radiator. into the radiator. Yeah. So I can keep it, you know, I can watch my temperature, I can keep it between 70 and 80, which the handbook suggests is the ideal. 18 is probably where you get the best when, yeah, as you know, with petrol, you know, for a 14 to 1 mixture, air, 14 to 1 mixture is probably where you're getting the best economy. So I can just the temperature. When I get up to about 18, I know I'm running sweetly and I can lean it back. I have a mixture control on the steering wheel so I can lean the mixture control back and it's just not stressed. So whereas if I was in normal top, I'd probably be doing 1500 revs and I'd be concerned about my speed. You know, I'd be having to not make sure I'm not overdriving it. A colleague of mine listened to some of your exploits and was overwhelmed and particularly appreciative that you actually use the car, that you actually take it out on run. Oh yes, I, I mean look, I love going for a drive. On Friday I went for a drive just by myself. It was a beautiful day. I felt like king of the road. <laughs> the weather was absolutely perfect. There was no wind. It wasn't too hot. The car loved it and I could just tell when I got home the car was idling. I've I've been playing around with with spark plug gaps. You have a different gap. You know, this car has twin ignitions. So you've got a distributor ignition, you've got magneto ignition. The spark plugs are set differently to both. Probably with a magneto ignition, the most you'd have would be 25,000 gap. On the distributor ignition, I can go up to a 35,000 gap. You know, I can actually go to 40. If I go to 40, and then on a lean mixture when I pull up, they get the best idle. So I've been experimenting with spark plug gaps till I get, till I feel like I'm getting absolutely perfect running. I love the car. I don't like the car running rich. This car, when I start this car under the house, 
With old cars, you've got to be so careful. My wife doesn't like the house smelling of fumes, but this car does not make any fumes whatsoever because I've got it now set so nicely that it's running very cleanly. The modern equivalent now, and I love your point about how are you going to be using the car will depend on what you specified, for example, in the gear ratio. Yeah. The modern car, we need to consider that more closely in terms of are you going to be using it for urban or non-urban? Yeah. Yeah. And there are issues there in terms of pollution and others. We are also, because of things like electric cars, are having to consider more and understanding in a totally different technical way, but nonetheless a fundamental yeah. similar ways in a way, yeah. of understanding how we're using the car. Oh, my word, my word. I mean, you know... Uh... And, you know, I'm always conscious of making sure the car doesn't show any sign out of the exhaust pipe because if I pull up, a lot of people who are very conscious of climate change are not happy if your car is dirty. You know, you see cars on the road that are blowing a lot of blue smoke, right? And, you know, they should have their engines repaired. You know, they obviously need attention. And likewise, you see badly churned diesel cars emitting large amounts you, know, you don't see that. You know, remember when you used to see it in buses? Yes. You don't see that in buses anymore. No. So I'm always conscious of that if I'm with people who don't know, understand old cars and, uh, and that it doesn't smell, and, you know, um, so that you do, you look caring for the environment. Was it hard to sell your 1913? Yeah, it was. Um, you know, look, I'm in my 80th year and, um, you know, I guess you've got to realise that there's a point in life where car like that, I actually spent, as you know, I spent 15 years. I used to be laughed at by my colleagues taking parts to Melbourne all the time in that period where I was getting things done to it and restored down in Victoria and they used to carry car parts down and people would laugh at me. And, but, I mean, I went to an enormous amount of trouble. That car, I mean, I went to India to look at the Spanish Grand Prix winner as you know, Rolls-Royce only entered one Grand Prix in their life. That was the 1913 Spanish Grand Prix. I found the winner in India about 10 years ago and uh, I was asked to try and buy it. And I actually negotiated the sale of the car over the phone with an Indian gentleman. However, when I went to India to, to do the deal, he wanted to be paid in cash, which was simply not possible when you're paying a million and a half Australian dollars, you just can't move that sort of cash around the world. So otherwise someone would be suggesting it was a drug deal or something. So, <laughs> so um, it sadly fell over. The thing that I love out of that is that your passion for the roles doesn't narrow you down to the very minutiae of, of the car. It includes that, yeah. but it also includes that much broader understanding of its place in history and what the life and times were when it was brought in. Oh, yeah. Well, see, that car, they only made 22 of that high-speed Silver Ghost model. There's six left in the world, probably four uh, on the road. The other two are just chassis, unrestored, in bits, some of them. And as I wanted, I realised that the car... I had the opportunity to buy two Silver Ghosts, one was a three-speed London to Edinburgh, the other was a four-speed London to Edinburgh, which was the rarer one, and I elected to buy that. It was more expensive at the time, but I realised that it would be more valuable to a collector, to an enthusiast, because, as you know, rarity affects price. So 
I figured, down the track. I didn't really want to sell it. I had seven years of fun out of it, but I had to be realistic that old car prices are coming back. I was offered an enormous amount of money for it, and I just felt that... It was an offer you couldn't refuse. Yes, and I just felt the time was right in my life. Where is it now? It's in England. Yeah, it's in England. And um, Did you make a... uh pilgrimage back to see it at some time? No, I don't know. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm taking taking a travel right tour to England next year, which might take me there. I might have a look yeah. at it. I don't know. Um, I had a wonderful period with it, and everyone said it was probably the best silver ghost they'd ever seen, and I don't say that with any skiting uh, no, in it. No. It's just that I went to enormous trouble to make sure every detail was perfectly correct. I went to America twice, the UK and, as I said, to India, and the Spanish Grand Prix car was very, very complete, was under a house in Kanpur that had been there since 1951. Oh. And so it had, you know, it was up on blocks. In fact, I was laying under the car and I was actually petrified a snake was going to come out <laughs> and bite me, you know. It was under this quite old house and um, a lot of snakes in India. But anyway, I, I did get lots of photos of it and that helped me with little detail elements to the car and um, which I included. Mm. And um, everybody said, you know, the car was just... Fabulous. As a driving car, it was just beautiful. Like at uh, 100 kilometres an hour, it just purred. You know, it was just... It was so light and, uh, and it had... The car had had a chequered history. I mean, it had been initially bought by um, a doctor in London who gave it, and that was November 1913, he gave it to the war service for use by generals, which a lot of people did. A lot of English owners did that with their upper luxury cars. The British War Ministry used it until after the war. The car at one stage was in Berlin, as the service records indicate. Why it was in Berlin, I don't know, but it was in Berlin. And at the end of the war, if you gave your car over to the country, you didn't get it given back to you. They auctioned it off. <laughs> so it was auctioned off and bought by a doctor in Chester. So he, he rebodied the car with a more modern body. Then in 1928, he sold it to a friend of his who was a doctor in Randwick who brought it to Australia. And he had Propitz, the local bodybuilders in Sydney, build another body to update it. So a lot of Rolls-Royce people did from that pre-war, post-war period. In the late 20s, they updated the car to look more modern. He updated, he kept the car for a while. Um, and interestingly, in his, he lived at Bellevue Hill. In his um, period, the car ran down, ran out of brakes in the driveway of his house, ran down, hit, hit his letterbox and broke the diff in half at the back. So one half of the diff tube had to be replaced. Now, Rolls-Royce documented all of their parts. When I bought the car, I was able to actually document the part number was correct, and the, where they'd replaced it was correct. <laughs> so that was nice. Yeah. And then, after his ownership, it was bought by Redfern Towing and turned into a tow truck. Oh. Yeah. And, you know, the, nothing better than a silver gross for towing a semi-trailer out of a bog. I mean, the torque... You're seven and a half litres with enormous torque, low gearing, and they pulled a fabulous tow truck. So then after that period, after Redfern Towing had used it, probably wore most of it out, it was rebodied with a Cadillac 
28 Cadillac body and became a mourning coach for a funeral company. So it used to lead funeral processions with a more modern Cadillac body. And then, um, and then after that, a collector, or not a collector, but an old guy at Seven Hills bought it. And he, he lived near the railway station at Seven Hills, which was just a railway crossing. Now, of course, you go across a bridge. And uh, he, put the house, he put the car in his backyard, which faced onto the, onto the street, right near the, the uh, railway crossing. Anyway, uh, a friend of mine used to come past who was a car enthusiast. This is in the late 50s when car enthusiasts were starting to look at old cars as collectible. Used to come past this and look, see the top of this vintage body, Cadillac body. One day he pulled up and had a look and saw it was a Rolls Royce. So he went in and asked them if he could buy it. And they said, oh, no, no, um, you know, my husband's going to do something with that one day. You know. <laughs> anyway, uh, a little while later, probably about six months later, I think it was, uh, this friend uh, was reading the Sydney Morning Herald and he read where a man had been crossing the, uh, the, the railway line at Seven Hills Station and been run down by a train and killed. And it was this guy. He remembered, that his, he remembered the family name. So he called in some months later, leaving it for a while, and bought the car off the widow. And, um, and I actually, and funnily enough, I was at the time gar garaging this fellow's. My, my father died when I was 11. We didn't have a family car. Um, Mum couldn't afford one. And I, we, we had a garage at Epping. And so this friend who was a car collector I'd been introduced to uh, said, would you, you know, have you got a garage vacant? He said, I, I need somewhere to put my four and a half litre Bentley. You know, he said, I've run out of garage space. I said, oh, Mum will rent that to you. So I rented him this garage space on the basis that I got to, if I washed the car once a month, I got to have a drive. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I used to drive a four and a half litre Bentley when I was 17. I thought I was king of the road. So, uh, but he, he had found this Rolls Royce at Seven Hills, bought it, and he showed me the photographs of it, I remember. And little did I think that some 40 years later I'd end up owning it. And uh, I still had the Cadillac body when he got it. And he, took, he lived uh, over at Cremorne. He took the car to Belrose Tip, cut the body off with an axe, the old Cadillac body, chopped it off with an axe and turned it into a chassis. And he did some work on it, but Dick, um, he wanted to buy another Rolls Royce from the 30s. And so he sold it to a collector in Canberra. Um, and uh, that collector had about 26 early silver ghosts. He had a big collection. He was the chairman of Elders IXL, fascinating bloke called Paul Freeman. Farris Paul Freeman was his name. And he had this big collection of silver ghosts, chassis, part-bodied, you name it. And my car ended up there. Well, he died and the car ended up with his grandson. And... Um, it was a grandson that auctioned it to another doctor in Melbourne some time later who uh, eventually put it up for sale and that's where I got to buy it. So went through this great chain of owners and bodies and, you know, most Rolls Royces, like, you know, as they say, you know, uh, like Grandfather's Act. Yeah, yeah, Washington's Act, I was thinking of, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so that's how I ended up with that car. But, but uh, It still had the underpinnings. Of the, the oh yeah of the Rolls Royce. It had Royce. some updates. I mean, it had been serviced by 
uh, Appleby and Ward, who are the agents in Sydney from time to time, mm. and um, Appleby, Appleby and Ward, uh, trying to think of Ward's first name, unusual name, and he, he had made notes on the chassis card about what had been done to it. There were a few modern things that I had to, to you know, modify to go back to go its back. original. Yeah. Mm. But basically it was a very good chassis, mm. yeah, and very rare being four-speed, as I said. We're sitting here in your study with pictures of the grandchildren. <laughs> How do they relate to the car? Well, I've got four grandsons and one granddaughter, and um, the boys generally are not interested. Granddaughter isn't. She loves travelling in it. But I have my youngest grandson, who's 15, who I took to Eastern Creek uh, for the Shannon's Classic Car Day. He, he's my car boy. I call him my car boy. He loves it. Yeah, and he's 15 and uh, as keen as mustard. I met him there, yes. Yeah, yes, yeah, lovely. Kobe, so he's, he's very keen. But the other three boys are not so interested. But they must, as you say, and your daughter, it must turn heads. Oh, they, love, they, they still love riding in it, yeah. but they're not, they're not car people as such. You no. know? Two of them are very uh, scholastic and, you know, mm. uh, uh, you know, looking to their future with education and, you know, cars are not so important. No, but they, they do reflect the times and they can enjoy it even if they're not going to yeah. be as committed yes. or as, as involved in it as yes. much as yeah. you have been over the years. Yeah. It must have made for a few good school projects or something, must it? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, and my other cars, of course. You know, I've, I, I've, I've had about three or four old cars and um, maybe four or five, but... You know, I, uh, the early era appeals to me. Uh, the restoration of my Maxim was a major exercise over 10 years and, uh, you know, that is a great story in itself, mm. how I found it and how it came to Australia. We must cover that at some stage. Yeah. But it's, it's a way of making uh, something more than a hobby. I don't mean to diminish yeah. it by calling it that. But it's a way that um, brings history to life, and I think that's very important. Oh, but, I mean, this country, I mean, this country was fascinating in the cars that came here. You've got to remember that we 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 very. It's always been a gold mine in terms of what it's offered up in terms of old cars. We we got the early American imports. We got, and that was partly because of the duty, the full duty we had. A very fascinating coach building history here, and you know um, Holden among other things. Yeah, well, look at Holden, um, and uh, then we got the British cars here as well. So we, mm. you know, the, there's always been a fascinating array of cars found here from the 50s and 60s. Some of the finds were just incredible, and it's an application of cars in a manner that was. I love the 1913 that your rolls that had the little plaque that said you could go for a straight-through exhaust, which would be more efficient but much noisier, yeah. not to be used in the UK. What well, was it, only in the colonies? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> in a way, that says an enormous amount about the image yeah, that's right. of, you know, yeah. uh, stay pristine, clean and quiet at home, yeah. but out in the colonies. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, yeah, it was it, and and it's those reflections I think of the times that that, that cars like this can prompt you to can oh, can trigger. 
yeah. considerations. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, we had a very big local. I mean, you've got to remember that on Parramatta Road, um, my wife's uh, father was a, and grandfather were aerial and commercial photographers and Milton Kenton's son, and they photographed most of the cage-building companies on Parramatta Road, Jackson, Jones and Collins, um, uh, what's it, Martin and King. Some of the, you know, there were a lot of very big cage-building companies here. Was it the Parramatta Road that there was the wicker basket? Was that Parramatta yeah. Road? I yeah. seem to remember your 1913. What was yeah. his slogan? Uh, there was for the wicker uh, caning or something or other, wasn't there? Oh, <laughs> yes. Um, let me go. Got to try and think of that off the cuff, David. Come um, here if you want some good caning or something. <laughs> yes, <right>? a good <laughs> caning. Yeah. Well, he used to sit his son out on the curb. And when the car pulled up, if it was a Packard or a Rolls Royce, he'd run in and tell his father. So his father knew to charge an appropriate amount of money for the. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you plan to keep this for a while? Uh, yes, this car, yes. As long as I can drive it okay. Um, mm. You know, I've always wanted an E Type Jaguar. Oh. Uh, and, you know, that would be the car that I would buy as a, as a collector car. Into the future, when I when I'm too old to drive this car, mm. I mean, I I just love this car, man. It's just a beautiful car. A, a manual gearbox? Has it got any synchro or that? Is it? I remember you very uh, very charitably gave me a chance to ride around as your passenger <laughs> around Eastern Creek yeah. in the 1913 at uh, Shannon's Day. That was yeah. lovely. How's this drive? Is it? Is it similar in terms oh, of... Oh, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a crash gearbox. It's not, there's no synchro mesh. Um, no, it's quite easy to drive, you know. Um, it's, uh, uh, it's just got an enormous amount of torque. So, I mean, I've got, as you see, my driveway is very steep. steep. It just goes pop, 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 pop. Just uh, you wouldn't think you're, you think you're on a level piece of ground. You know, it just does it so easily. Uh, no, it's very easy to drive. The steering is the difficult one. It's still very heavy um, whilst you're at low speed, parking speed. Um, and uh, one of the things that I've found, uh, this is one of the things that old car collectors uh, tend to forget today, is that tyres, for example, the tyre construction today is totally different to the tyre construction in 1928. So this car has Michelin uh, tyres and... When 1928, they would have been just about pure rubber, but most of these tyres now have modern additives. And what that does to the tyre, it gives them a stiffer wall, but also makes them flat spot in the wintertime. So I keep the car jacked up in the front. Otherwise, in the wintertime, you get quite a significant flat spot and you won't, unlike a... Because you're generally not... Uh, putting steering pressure that you would get in a modern car on the car, you're not cornering fast enough or hard enough. It takes ages for the tyres to get any heat. And so that flat spotting uh, is very noticeable through the steering wheel. So I keep the car jacked up and it's made a world of difference. Um, I now drive off and I um, say I'm two kilometres here from here to the M7 motorway and they get on the M7 motorway and you don't get any heat in the tyres really in a straight line like that, travelling at 100. So, But if the tyre's running round, it's lovely. 
But if I was in a really cold winter's morning to not jack it up and take it onto the M7, I'd have considerable rumble through the front for quite some k's. Of course, it has a big, not so boot as such, but almost a luggage thing oh, on well, the back. Oh, well, it's got the trunk on the back, trunk, yeah, trunk. which was pretty pretty mm. common in that era. Yes, of course. Yes, but, mm. uh, yeah, yeah, well, there's not too much area in the car to, to put to luggage. And yeah, yeah, so, uh, yeah, so that was uh, fortunate that was there. Uh, tatty, very tatty, and had to be... Um, we rebuilt it. We rebuilt it under the covering with marine ply, and um, so uh, that's uh, that's worked very well. It's quite strong, and I keep forty liters of fuel in there as well, uh, so that I've got two twenty liter containers of petrol just in case I run out. You would need leaded petrol. What is? It? Yeah, I run it on ninety five premium. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Have you got to put a lead additive into that? No, 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 no. It runs quite well on that. Um, lovely, isn't it? Yeah. David, it's a, a glorious car. Perhaps we might stop now but just have a little wander around yeah, and, sure. and have a look at it. Yeah, sure. Um, it's, been, it's been a wonderful, um, eclectic <laughs> conversation. Oh, well, and, you know, unfortunately, David, uh, you become a little a bit, a bit obsessed with these old cars. I'm... As my letterhead suggests, you know, I'm an obsessed automobilist. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I just, you know, uh, think that... But it springboards into gl- glorious broader discussion as well. You know, well, the, you know, the fact that, the, you know, some are in India, some were over there. This is what Rolls-Royce yeah. was doing at the time. Yeah. Racing, you know, yeah. quite different from what the very narrow perception we might have at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not a sporty car. It's just a very elegant, gracious car. And um, I love, I love the, the power of it on the open road, you know. You do feel like king of the road when you're driving it. You do feel uh, wonderful feeling of it. And that, I love that feeling. And, you know, we, as you and I do, we test cars, modern cars. You don't get that so much with a modern car today unless you're driving something very exotic but with a car like this uh, it's so big and imposing and and I love the reaction of people's faces on the standing on the side of the road you know that 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 gives you a there's enormous joy in that I drove into the suburb here and I remember that there was a gentleman that had a 1936 Cord oh yes and he very generously drove and chauffeured my son to his formal. Oh, right. Yeah. And while there were those who had paid for and got a stretched limo, <laughs> this had an elegance to it. And I wonder whether that's where you role with your children or with your grandchildren. Yeah, well, they're the sort of, they're the sort of things that you do, go to school formals and... <laughs> Yeah, friends' weddings, all that yeah. sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you, you must be on the list of <laughs> invitations yeah. to weddings. Well, <laughs> let me say to you that at Eastern Creek on Sunday, I had four invitations. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so, you know, uh, people think that you've got a lot of time on your hands. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. 
And that was motoring journalist and an international expert on some veteran and vintage cars, particularly Rolls Royces that he has owned. More interviews with David can be heard on our website at drivenmedia.com.au including more details about his 1913 roles and his reminiscences of Murray Walker. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to David Berthon, Bruce Potter and Mark Wesley for their help with this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or links to the socials and podcasts. Look for Cars, Transport, Culture. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. Music